Matt, this is going to be a great lecture. Uh, welcome back to Grounds. I'm Althea Brooks, and I'm Director of Lifetime Learning here at the University of Virginia and the Alumni and Parent Engagement. And we produce educational programs all year long for alums, parents, and friends. And if you're connected with any of the UVA clubs, you may have had a faculty speaker. Uh, our office actually coordinates those speakers for you. So I hope, I hope you're taking advantage of your UVA club that's uh, nearby and local for you. Uh, today, if you would, before we begin, go ahead and silence the ringer on your phones. Also, we passed out the green feedback cards at the end of the talk. If you'll give us uh, comments on today's talk, we use those comments to plan future reunions and special events. And on behalf of the Alumni Association and the uh, Office of Engagement, alumni, uh, parents, and friends, we'd like to just welcome you back to Grounds and thank you for being here today. I'd like to introduce our speaker for uh, this afternoon, Kurt Von Dack. Uh, he's the Associate Professor and Assistant Dean for the Department of History at the University of Virginia. He's a graduate of UVA and received his MA and PhD at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, Kurt research uh, centers on the social constructions of race, community, social orders, and identity in the 18th and 19th century America. He's especially fascinated with the studying the complex interplay of race and culture in the antebellum South. Uh, he's released his first book. It's called Freedom Has a Face, Race, Identity, and the Community in Jefferson's Albemarle in 1780 through 1865. And I understand he's working on his second book uh, this fall when he takes the, the fall off um, from teaching. He's currently working on Jefferson's University, which is the Early Life Project. It's a major digital humanities project that he co-founded with uh, art history professor Maury McGinnis. He will share a bit more about this project in his, in his talk today. The project will create a comprehensive digital archive of early university records, will track persons, places, and events over the time in the academical village, and ultimately include a 3D recreation of, recreation of central grounds before the Civil War. Additionally, Kurt is very excited about his uh, position as co-chair of the UVA's President's, President's Commission on Slavery here at the university. I'm sure he'll tell you more about this project as well in his talk. Please help me welcome Kurt Van Dyck to speak with us today. Am I live? I am, okay. Thanks, Thank you, Althea. Okay, good afternoon. I'm gonna to apologize to all of you in advance. I was in Georgia all week, and apparently when I drove back, I brought Georgia weather with me. Um, so I think it was beautiful yesterday here, and now it's 90 degrees, and we're all sweating. So Althea's introduction was perfect. I, I, I wanted to start before I actually got to the project and the talk in the early years of the university, just to talk about how this project came about. And before you all came back to town, did, did most of you receive the University of Virginia magazine? So mine, mine, I didn't, it must have come during the week. Mine was sitting on my coffee table this morning. And the co-founder of this project, Maury McInnes, has a piece in there. And this just got me to thinking. This is, uh, I think, what I love about UVA, that this project started. I was teaching a class in history 
that was examining uh, written documents by the enslaved. So slave narratives, and then in the 1930s, the Works Progress Administration interviewed uh, elderly former slaves about their experiences. And so this was a class entirely text-driven. We sat in there every day. They read and they read. You know, they probably read 300 pages a week. And we sat in a circle and talked about it. And Maury offered one day, said, why don't, why, don't, why don't I come and we'll go outside and we'll talk about UVA as a, a, a plantation and we can talk about the hidden history of UVA. We had a great time. The class loved it and we're standing there in the garden behind Pavilion 7. And a student looks at her and goes, well, how do we know all this? And she turns, she points, she goes, well, it's all right over there. It's just in the library. She goes, was anybody doing anything with it? She goes, no. So we look at each other and we go, why aren't we doing something with it? And so that sort of started this project. We were both interested in slavery, this, this hidden history at UVA. And as we started to look at all the documents, we realized, holy cow, this, this, is, uh, right, this is the history of higher education in America. This is the America's first enlightenment university, first elective, elective curriculum. And we can see all this developing in these records. And so it started as a conversation about slavery, became a conversation about the early university. And then, and I love this, it's an art historian and a historian trying to uh, imagine things. I have zero technological skill at all, right? So I'm like the old VCR. You pull the, the electronics out of the box, you plug it in, and when it doesn't work, you pound it with your fist and hope it works. So no technological expertise at all. And we just started brainstorming. Wouldn't it be great if we could digitize everything and put it in a database, and then we could do a 3D model? And that was it. We said, yeah, that all sounds great. How do you do it? And so we connected with the Institute for Advanced Technology and the Humanities here at UVA. And computer science professor Worthy Martin became, joined the project as well. And we, I think every day I get up and go, thank you, thank you for that, because he's made the kind of technological underpinning of this uh, you know, vision uh, a reality. So I, that's the, the setup for what we're going to talk about today as, uh, as I run through a ser series of images. Okay, my computer is doing something strange. I'm sorry. Here we go. Technological failure all around. So our beautiful lawn, you've all probably been out there walking today. You've walked through the gardens. Anybody take a seat on one of those lovely white benches in a garden? Yeah, good. Okay, good. I don't know if it's a cool spot today or not. So I love this project because it's using our own university as Jefferson would have intended it. Right? This is, he designed the University of Virginia as a living laboratory, right? Everything, the very buildings were imbued with pedagogical intent. And as he said, right, history, by apprising us of the past, will enable us to understand the future. This is a reminder that for us to understand our current situation, it is important that we understand our past. And though we talk all the time about our past here, we actually don't know a lot about our past. Right? Those gardens tell you nothing about what actually went on in there. And I know anybody want to admit to, I have one in my office. Do you have one of those old drawings of UVA from back in the day where the rotunda looks like a skyscraper? Anybody have that picture? That picture right there, we're going to get to that, even reveals some of the history that we don't see anymore around grounds. So this is the project we created, Jefferson's University, the Early Life Project. It's actually a live website that you can visit. It's still 
under development because the documentary record that we are digitizing and then doing XML markup on so that you can track people, place, and event is pretty massive. But it's there and you can go play around and it, it, it grows uh, day by day. I'm not quite sure. I think we have probably 10, 15 students working nearly full-time all summer on the project and we've had 30 or 40 students work on the project over the last two and a half years or so. So it's really, really come a long way. And you can see here, this, I don't even think this is uh, complete, but this is what I love. My experience at UVA was being invited to do research with professors. I'm sure you had similar experiences. And this is just a partial list of the many people involved, right? A whole host of students. The library has helped us. The Institute for Advanced Technology and the Humanities. So this is a Jefferson's vision come to life in the 21st century. So this is the Maverick plan, right? This is Jefferson's 1822. He didn't do the engraving, but he commissioned the engraving of the university. And this is a wholly new concept in America at, time, at the time. It's a simple two-dimensional drawing that's an ideal, right? It doesn't actually get at the reality of what happens when you put this in three dimensions and you insert lots and lots of people into it. And so right, he's changed the design of the American university. At that point, most American universities were essentially one large building. Does anybody remember where did Thomas Jefferson go to school? William & Mary. Anybody remember what he thought about William & Mary? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. He just chuckled. He didn't like it. He really hated the Wren building, which was the one big massive building that was William & Mary. And he wanted a very different educational experience. And so that's what he's designing here, right? This is, he's the idea man, and we're going to get to what actually happens. But he splits it up, right? Now we have a campus with a central green space. Faculty live in pavilions that are also have classrooms. And instead of a chapel being the centerpiece or, uh, uh, of the university, we have a monument to uh, secular learning in, in the rotunda. So this is the design in 1822, flat, two-dimensional, on paper, it basically reflects what you see when you walk around, but again, doesn't really get at the deeper history that's hidden there. And what he wants to happen is students to, to live here in the ranges, live in the lawn rooms, interact with their professors, take classes, and choose an, elect an elective curriculum, right? Not come here to become ministers, to, become, to come here to expand their minds. And he builds the rotunda, and I love this. This is, you can't go into the rotunda yet, but you're going to have to come back in the fall when it reopens. We're really excited about this because if you've been following the news, right, we found a chemical hearth, so we know there was actually science instruction in the oval rooms. Um, and they're going to turn one of these oval rooms on the ground floor into a visitor's center, so you'll get a real kind of historical introduction. So it's going to be a very different experience when you come back. So again, this is... Drawings. This is Jefferson's two-dimensional ideal for what he's building and why he's building it. Charlottesville. It's not, it's a, it, it, have, did you, you guys were probably all here on grounds, right, the whole time. If you go to Charlottesville now, I think we have more restaurants per capita than anywhere on the East Coast, more bookstores. Charlottesville in 1819 is a tiny little town. It is a courthouse and a handful of buildings. It's a, it's a hamlet at most. So it's not a city. Albemarle County, that it's the 
uh, administrative head of is a 750 square mile county. So from the courthouse, you can go 20 to 22 miles in any direction before you leave the county. It's a big rural county. And you get a sense of this here, right? This is sort of a down by the 14th Street Bridge where there's probably a truck with its top ripped off, caught under the bridge as we speak. <laughs> right, looking back up toward the university, and you can see as soon as you leave the university, you're in a farm field. So this is a very, very rural place. There are around 10,000 free white citizens in Albemarle around the time the university opens, and around 11,000 enslaved people living in Albemarle County. So more than half the population of this large rural county are enslaved. So this is a really important to understand what's going to go on at the university. And even this picture starts to capture, in addition to the farmland, if you can, I don't know how well you can see it out there, but if you look, you buildings and chimneys that don't correspond to the Maverick plan. So we know that as soon as people get here, Jefferson's ideal has to change to live up to the realities that people deal with. So I love it right way. Let's see if I can do this. Oh, yeah. There's a chimney over here. I'm not even sure what that is, but this is not from an actual building in the Maverick plan. And there are several others as you'll see. And this is the best. This is my, all these engravings are my favorite um, because the rotunda is so enormous. <laughs> but again, you have to think, in 18, in 18, when they build this thing in 1826, when it's nearing completion, that's what it looks like. It's the Empire State Building, right? This is a place that has no more than a two-story building anywhere. And most people that don't own lots of land and lots of enslaved people live in very humble houses. So the, the first urban settlement in Albemarle County, arguably the university, it's about the same time that Scottsville, Scottsville is going to be the thriving metropolis in the 1820s and 1830s. And if you've been down to Scottsville, it's two blocks. Its thriving moment of metropolisness was all of two blocks long and two decades. So this is what it looked like, and I like this picture. Charlottesville's actually a little bit bigger in the distance up there than it really was. And there's this gap, right? There's, it's off in the distance. It's not part of Charlottesville. It's on an abandoned farm on a ridgeline west of town. And again, you can see in every direction, woods, mountains, farm fields. And as you look closer here, if you notice, this is what's great about this drawing. I've blown it up down here. Look at all the buildings. These are all outbuildings that are not part of the Maverick plan that are stuck in these gardens. There are tons of them. And this is, this is, these buildings tell a story. And we're attempting through this project to try to recreate some of these and recreate the world uh, that those buildings existed in. So this is Jefferson's design. And then after it's built, it changes based on all the people that are living there. I love this. I love this drawing too. Another one again, note the really odd tall rotunda. And we have people. We have people on the lawn. And some of them clearly are not students, right? I don't think any student at the University of Virginia has ever willingly pushed a wheelbarrow across the lawn. <laughs> so that's the other hidden thing that's missing in all these images, right? What does it take to run, even today, what does it take to run a modern university? It takes lots and lots of people, right? The, I, I joke, I watch every year, if you come back right before graduation, they tear up about 750 square miles of sod at this place 
and throw it in a heap in the woods and lay down new sod. I want them to come to my house. My weeds would love to be replaced by sod. That takes a lot of people, right? And that's just for grounds maintenance. When you add in food, housing, there's a whole lot of people that have to be brought in to do the work. And the hidden history at UVA involves all those people. It's an, uh, a lot of enslaved people, but also free white people of various stations, from you know, professors and planters down to humble stonemasons and carpenters who come in and do work. So in 1825, when the university opens, it's going to look a lot busier than that. There's going to be a real hum of activity. And I, I have to explain this to students every year, right? Some of you may know this better than our 21st century students, but I have to remind them that, you know, chicken doesn't come as a boneless breast on a piece of styrofoam with plastic over it, right? It was once an animal, and it has to get that way. And so something you want to be thinking about is there's no, they don't have electricity. They don't have running water. They don't have a grocery store. They don't have refrigeration. So all the things we take for granted are going to take uh, a whole lot more on-site work to make what we know. So 1825 rolls around. Construction is nearing complete completion on this. And the university opens, right? It goes from ideal on paper by Jefferson, right? Which is, that's Jefferson's contribution, the idea and the work to actually make this a reality, right? Everything else is done by workers. And, and anybody notice something you all know about the lawn? Do you think the lawn, when they bought the property, had those nice terraces there? No, right? That had to be done. So even before there's a building, there are people out there leveling the landscape and creating the terracing according to Jefferson's plans, right? He comes down with a, a, a surveyor and, an, and one of his slaves from Monticello to actually do the surveying to lay out where the university is going to be. And then he designs it to fit into the landscape. From that point on, though, it's a huge team of enslaved people and contractors and hired workers who do all the work, leveling the ground, building the buildings. And so there's three phases. Jeffersonian design, actual construction by dozens and dozens of contractors, enslaved people, and hired workers. And then a third phase, which is, oh, now we've got, we've got this. People arrive. And so people actually arrive. I love this. And you get a sense right here. This is our student. I, I give my students a hard time every year. I ask them, what's the UVA uniform? And um, it's, I think it, this year seems to involve L.L. Bean boots, khakis, and a button-down shirt, or a dress with pearls. Right? There's always a uniform. And you can kind of tell status, but we even do this today, right? You, you, you don't go by the Felice at Old Navy. You get the one that says Patagonia. It keeps you just as, the Old Navy one keeps you just as warm, but you want to say, I wear Patagonia. They're even more status conscious in the 19th century. I'm going to get to a description later of this getup, but, right, they come very well dressed. Does anybody know who are the first students at the university? What's the, what's the defining characteristics of them? Male, white, wealthy. To, to a person, they are. And this makes sense, right? Jefferson creates this university both because he didn't like his experience at William & Mary, but also because he wants there to be a southern institution. He doesn't, want, he doesn't want the sons of the south to go to Harvard and Yale and be corrupted by northern values. We can talk about what he means by northern values, 
But th so this is why he creates this place. This is what he's very concerned about. And so the, the people coming here, by definition, are almost entirely the sons of wealthy planters, largely in Virginia. When the university opens, it, I think opens with 63 students arrive at the, the very beginning of the first session. That will swell. 35 of the about 100 students in the first session are from Albemarle County. Right? This, so this starts as a rather local project. It's going to expand quickly and include people from all across the United States, but it tends to tilt toward the wealthy. And this is not, not entirely Jefferson's plan. He actually right, builds into the charter. There is supposed to be a meritocratic financial aid system built into the early university. It doesn't happen because it's a state-funded institution and the state doesn't appropriate the funds until 1847. But by and large, that's your student. White, male, rich, raised on a plantation and raised to mastery, which I think is really important to think about. Their self-conception when they get here is as wealthy, important people who take orders from no one. And they're very concerned about public perception because that's how 19th century culture works. So they have to defend their honor. The sl any slight might mean we need to duel, we might need to fight to, uh, to protect my honor. And this is, so this is not the honor system we know today. This is public honor and it's all about public presentation. So these are the students who arrive and this is going to make for a rather volatile mix. And then we have professors. Right? The, uh, the first professors are entirely European. Right? This, Thomas Jefferson actually sends an emissary to Europe to hire professors. He wants, he doesn't think there are professors of the appropriate quality here in the United States. So he gets all European professors. And remember, our little, our guys up here are very worried about presentation. This is 1825, right? We've, we've won the War of 1812 in the last decade. We're muscular Americans. There's a really kind of uh, manly American nationalism going on at that time. They don't like Europeans. So this is going to be a particularly volatile mix. And everyone, all professors, when they get here, they have a house. Right? They teach on the first floor, live on the second floor. They have families. They, need, they want domestic help. So even European professors, when they get here, come to a county in which 51 to 52% of the population is enslaved. The people you hire to do work are going to be enslaved people. So every professor who comes to UVA becomes a slave owner. And so we immediately, the mix here is students, right? In 1825, from 60 to a little over 100, eight professors in the first year. And then when we look at eight professors and a series of hotel keepers who are running the dining halls, you have between 90 and 150 enslaved people living on the university as well. And so this is Sally Cottrell Cole. This is one we can document. She was born and enslaved at Monticello and owned by Professor Thomas Key, who's the only early UVA professor who shows any qualms about slavery. He works out an agreement to give her her freedom uh, after he leaves. So she's freed and remains in Charlottesville. So this, this is the mix of all those people you can't see in those early drawings here at the university. And I, I, I wanted you to hear, not unlike today, it's people of all educational levels, all economic backgrounds, and what they would have called in the 19th century ranks. Right? A student said, we have some of all ranks, from the highest to the lowest, both in birth and reputation. And so that's, that's the reputation these guys are worried about. You're either you have the right reputation or you're not. And 
I just wanted to throw this up here. This, I, I had to get up and change the PowerPoint this morning after reading in the New Alumni magazine Maury McInnes's one pager, which is just a reflection talking about this project and talking about her experience as an alum as well. And she said, we, we, we must be honest and confront the racial injustice in our institution's history. And she's right. We have taken many important steps in that process. And I'm excited that the project I'm talking about is really doing a lot of the research that's helping the university start to more systematically confront that past. And the big one, if you've had a chance to, how many here lived in what we now call new old dorms? You know, the ones that look like Howard Johnson's? I think Fitzhugh, Dunglison, and Courtney are the only ones that remain. Okay, if you go out there now, right, you're lost. You're like, what, there's skyscrapers everywhere. Well, one of these buildings just went online last June. So the first class moved in in August. And we've actually, as part of this process, doing this history, have been able to name that dorm after William and Isabella Gibbons, who were two enslaved people owned by different professors who lived at the university, managed to learn to read and write while at the university, which it was illegal to teach enslaved people to read and write. And there was actually a slave patrol at the university monitoring this. So anyone who attempted to teach the enslaved would run into trouble. So William and Isabella Gibbons somehow managed to raise a family while owned by different owners. And after the Civil War is over, they go on to be community leaders here in Charlottesville. Isabella Gibbons is the first teacher of color in the Freed Person School after emancipation. This is now the Jefferson School downtown. And William Gibbons goes on to be the first minister of color at First Baptist Church on Main Street next to the train station, and then goes on to uh, co-found a church in D.C. And when he dies, 10,000 people attend his funeral in D.C. He's, he has a major obituary in the Washington Post. And then his body is returned to be buried here in Charlottesville. And the, Charlottesville, now a small town, Charlottesville and the university basically have to shut down for a day because every African-American worker in town refuses to do anything that day. They're going to attend the funeral and they line the streets. So these, these are fascinating people that live here at the university who are not allowed an education and are owned, but their lives are a testament to resistance to that. And so we've named the building after them. And th these are the kinds of people that the Jewel Project is beginning to uncover in some way. And we have President Sullivan founded the President's Commission on Slavery in the, uh, and the University in 2013. So been around for uh, almost three years at this point. We also have a website. So if you want to see what we're up to and what's going on of late, it's a great thing to check out. We're even running a uh, summer institute for high school students in two weeks. So I go right from this to planning how to deal with high school students. I'm going to figure it out quick, I think. Uh, so this, this is separate from the project I'm talking about. But I think it's been really important that the, the Jewel Project really has driven the historical research that the commission has been asked to do. So there's just a lot going on here. And these are the kinds of things we uncover. Enslaved people weren't, weren't, typically didn't read and write, didn't have access to papers, often even in freedom didn't end up accumulating enough money to leave written records behind. Right? When you go into any archive, Thomas Jefferson has 120 volumes of written material. Most people leave a very fleeting presence in the archival record. And 
slavery works exact, exactly that way. The university, as far as we can tell, only owns one enslaved person. But it, it, it hires hundreds between uh, 1817 and 1865. And so they show up in records, in fleeting financial records, as it'll mention hands, laborers, or it might name. So in this case, here in Special Collections, we have this document. This is a promissory note to a local person. I promise to pay res resin wheat on order $57.50 for the hire of a boy named Robert this present year for use of the University of Virginia, the said boy Robert to be well clothed and returned at the end of the year, unavoidable accent, accents accepted. So if Robert dies when he falls off scaffolding on the rotunda, well, Mr. Wheat might not recoup any of his property. So this is how slavery shows up in the archives. And it's just hidden in collection after, after collection down in special collections. And we have to spend a lot of time digging through it to find it. And what our project is doing is as we find these, we're transcribing them. And then we're doing, and this is, I'm sorry, Worthy, I know you're back there. I'm going to embarrassingly explain XML markup. But once we have kind of a transcribed, typed up, computerized version, we convert it using what to me looks like a whole bunch of symbols. But you convert it so that it'll show up on a web page as text. And we mark, when we're doing this, person, place, and event. So that now every document we dump into this database is tracking. So you can go in and search on Mr. Wheat, and you can find every hit to him. They're not going to be a lot. He's a local man who is uh, just hiring his enslaved person to the university. But you can go in and do the same for students, and it'll show you every time they show up in a record. And we get this, right? A, a, a tax document from the sheriff. Taxes paid on 17 slaves above 12, 12 years old and 16 slaves above 16 years old. So we know for that year, which is, does it even tell you the year? 1821, right? This is during construction. We know the university had that year set 33 slaves living on grounds and working. Probably, mo uh, probably all of them hired from people in a kind of a several county radius. And down here we have $7.50 for the making of five suits of clothes for the following laborers at the university, Willis, Squire, Jack, Jim, and Fleming. So we, we get some names. We, we've got about 30 names of enslaved people who were hired for a full year. The hiring market in Virginia for enslaved people, so you know, it's kind of like going to a rent-a-center. If, if you want to rent, you know, you go to rent-a-center and you want a TV for the month, they'll, they'll rent you one, right? If you want it for a year, if you want to rent to own, you can do that. The slave hiring market in Virginia works exactly the same way. And I don't have documents here for you today, but we know the university sometimes hires they go through agents. So they'll go to Richmond, they'll contact a hiring agent who will then deliver to them enslaved people. So the enslaved people working at the university largely come from a several, several county radius, but some of them come, might come from much farther because there's this hiring market that is so commodified, right? It treats people as simply units of labor and time. And this is the kind of stuff just laying down there in special collections that we're digging up. So, back to our Maverick plan, right? We've gone pretty quickly from flat, two-dimensional idea to that bond engraving with the, the giant rotunda and all the outbuildings. And that's what I, I want you to think about. We know where the students live. 
We know where the professors live. Where do 90 to 150 enslaved people live? That's the big question, and that, that, that gets us at some of what goes on in those outbuildings. And this gets us back to what happens. So we populate this university. We've got 90 to 150 enslaved people. We've got a lot of really wound up rich young men who don't like to, be, to, to think that they're embarrassed in any way. And this is Jefferson's granddaughter in 1825. The university opened in the spring. So we're, we're not too far into this. And what have we had? Riots for two nights successively. So this is, Mr. Jefferson is still alive, and this toxic mix at the university is coming to effect. And if you read, it's a little hard to see here. This is just a great letter. So it's, you can hear the sadness and shock. This is Jefferson is ailing, and if you look right here, his nightly dose of laudanum to 100 drops. So laudanum is an opiate, and it's, used as a painkiller much like today. He's taken a whole lot of opiates because he's in a lot of pain. This is right, this is, we're now less than a year before he passes. So he is dying up at Monticello and his university, as soon as students get here, it's not the idea, right? It's, he imagined it that students would come, they would sit at the feet of master educators, gladly choose a course of elective classes and right, just drink from the cup of knowledge day and night. What do they do instead? Oh, they drink from a cup. <laughs> it's just not filled with knowledge. Okay? Uh, and, and, and typically, not unlike students today, when they drink a lot, they engage in some really ridiculous behavior, and they're particularly violent. Uh, I'm, really, I'm reminded daily, I really like the 21st century university, that our, our students aren't riding horses up and down the lawn. They're not firing firearms day and night. They're not sneaking around with masks. They're not attempting to blow up professors. They're not throwing bricks through my window. Um, so they're really misbehaving in a way. And you have to imagine, if they're young, they're raised in mastery, and your typical student here, some of them are actually younger. They're more sort of high school student age, right? Your, your age range is probably 15 to 25. So it's a little different because there is no system of public primary and secondary education. So most of them have been tutored at home. They've lived at home on a plantation in a rural area their entire life. And mom and dad have always been around. And so, right, they've, they may have been raised to mastery, but they've not had a chance to be independent. And so they're pretty excited to be independent. And they're, they're not going to take orders from anybody. So we know immediately we have problems. And so here's Mr. Jefferson. I always imagine he looks a little sad in this picture. He needs a tear down his eye in 1825 and 1826. And we have problems right away. And it has to do back with design. So he's designed this, right? He, Jefferson's idea is focused on what's not in the orange boxes, right? This is where students and faculty interact and live and learn, right? The illimitable mind is going to happen right there, faculty and students together. And then he's built these gardens, right? This is an Enlightenment university. And in an Enlightenment university, you till your own garden. So he's created garden spaces, not contemplative gardens with white benches and plantings and little paths, working gardens where you plant crops. But we have 100 students, 90 to 150 enslaved people, 
and let's, let's say another 20 adults in terms of professors and hotel keepers. Do you think those little gardens, you can grow enough food in those to feed everybody? It's, it's going to be a problem. So th this is what he's thought about. He's worried about that middle space. These are meant to be workyards, where in Enlightenment University, where, where students and faculty till their own garden. But this is 19th century Virginia. Who tills gardens in 19th century Virginia? Slaves, right? And slave people do the work there. And so what he has created are segregated spaces, right? This is the space when you stand on the lawn and you look around, right? The outside world disappears. You see the sky, you see the trees, and you see the space he wants you to see, right? That's all you see. The outside world is cut off. And on the inside, right, we have the colonnades, right? It's pillars all along there. So it's, everything opens to the inside. When you go to the range, it's arcaded, which closes off the outside world. So it's meant to be this inward-looking educational space. And this is where white students and faculty interact, and then food production happens in the gardens. And those serpentine walls that we now think of, right, it was Jefferson's design to show that you could build a wall one brick thick. Okay. You know how tall they were back then? Probably eight feet tall, right? Most, they, they were very tall. Why? We're, we're hiding from the white students and faculty the life and labor of the enslaved. So a student in the range would get up in the morning, he would walk up this way, wouldn't be able to see, he could hear the work going on in here, and we're gonna talk a lot about the work going on in there. And when he got up here, right, you walk onto the lawn to go to your classes. And the professors, when they move in, this is part of this, the ideal changes, they actually build stockades, wooden fences, eight feet tall, running here and here, to appropriate this space as a workyard. So they're initially designed as carriage turnarounds, but quickly simply become chutes that the students walk through so that he's, he's creating segregated spaces, in, again, in design. In theory, though, right? anybody know what these are? These are privies. Right? These are bathrooms, privies. I call it a bathroom, but right, it's a building over a hole in the ground. Um, Everybody has to use the bathrooms. So the segregated spaces, right? These eight-foot walled spaces where enslaved people are preparing food and doing all the daily work have to be accessed by faculty, right? They're up here in the pavilion watching their laborers work and coming into the yard to supervise. And students are coming in to use the privies. So by design, segregated spaces, but in reality, nothing like that. So this is a toxic mix as well. And remember, our students are behaving badly. What are eight-foot walls really good for if you want to get in trouble? You can hide behind them, right? So at night, and there's no street lights, right? This place must have been pitch black at night, right? There's no, I, I, you go out on the lawn now, right? You don't have to be here for lighting on the lawn. It's, it's really well lit. And you can see light coming from Charlottesville. There's all this kind of light pollution. There's no light pollution in 1826 uh, at all, right? So it's, it, I'm sure, very dark at night. And you have students running around in capes and masks. They're, they have, they're drunk. They have guns. And they don't like the professors. And they don't really like enslaved people. So you have this, again, toxic, toxic mix going on. That's really important. So again. The takeaway here is that what we now think of as beautiful gardens were, in fact, enslaved laboring spaces. That's where they were expected to work and provide what was necessary for life, right? Food, clothes washing, 
you name it. So I'm going to come back to Maury again. I just love it that this, her, her, her parting gift as she heads off to be the provost at the University of Texas was this lovely piece in your alumni magazine. And she said, I, I, I've removed some of it. It was too long. The takeaway, right, is that slavery's legacy is all around us at the university. Its legacy is embodied in the very architecture that Jefferson designed. So it is, in fact, beautiful, but it is designed as a segregated space, much like Monticello was designed, right? Meant to hide the life and labor of the enslaved. I like to think of this as Jefferson's eternal ambivalence about slavery, right? He doesn't like slavery, and, and he doesn't want it at his university because he thinks it corrupts the minds of the enslavers, right? He's worried about what it does to white people more than he's worried about what it does to enslaved people. So he has an ambivalence about it. We could, we could do a whole separate lecture on Jefferson and slavery, but we won't today. So the, the, those manicured gardens served as the workyard necessary to sustain the life of the university. Again, dozens of enslaved laborers managed the dirty business of 19th century life. And so we go from, right, here we are today, students sitting in a garden. I used to go into this very garden and study for my history classes when I was an undergraduate. Our privies are now, right, they're, they're reconstructed, so this is what they look like. Um, they're not actually privies now, they're storage sheds for facilities people, so I'm sure there's like a, a wheelbarrow hidden in there. Um, and these are in every hotel. So what we have now is a clean version of those very utilitarian garden spaces that Jefferson, right, in the Maverick plan, they're just there. He doesn't really explain what's going to go on in there. He didn't make any plans for what would happen and how they would be used other than they were meant to be working gardens. So, it, and it depends. We can see this is uh, early 20th century. What's missing? Serpentine walls, right? They're gone. They go up, they go down, they change height. And you can imagine why, right? It's one brick thick. They have to be, I think they're repointed on a yearly basis, right? They, they don't hold up well. Um, so they fall down. Utility trucks back into them. This is pretty common, uh, particularly in, in the first half of the 20th century. And faculty complain about them, right? They, Jefferson designs them high to separate the spaces, but they obscure sight lines. So faculty sometimes lower them, faculty sometimes raise them, faculty sometimes completely remove them. And so this is the result. And you can see, too, here that right by the early 20th century, garden uses vary quite a bit. So we know that Hotel A, uh, excuse me, I've got to go back. Do I have it here? Yeah, Hotel A's kitchen garden, which I don't have a picture of here, um, right, would have, was divided and actually had fruit trees in it. So this was maybe being an enlightenment garden. Most weren't like that at all. And the gardens we know today, 20th century creation. It's a garden club. I love it. She's got, she's got a little dog with her. So they, they went and they dug up and they found where some of the original walls were, where they thought were the original walls. And then they restored the lawn, right? This is Stanford White in the beginning of the 20th century, right? The rotunda redesign after the fire is, well, I think this is what Jefferson wanted. This is what Jefferson would have done. They kind of do the same thing here. So they redesign the gardens, but they focus on the walls, and then they focus on making them the contemplative spaces. So the, the gardens you go into today, notice the dates, it's basically 50s and early 60s recreation of something that never existed. But they went and, and did the work and then laid down walls that aren't actually where the original walls were. They're close, close enough 
for state work, as it were. This is your early garden, right? All those buildings in the, the, the Bond engraving with the giant rotunda, smokehouses, chicken coops, probably occasionally small stables, and kitchens. Does anybody know where in Jefferson's Maverick plan the kitchens were located? In the basement. And this seems like a good idea, right? This is, in design, this is really neat. We don't build outbuildings. It's neat and clean. Any idea what might be the problem if you have a working kitchen in the basement of every building? Fire, right? This is Kitchen buildings in the 18th and 19th century are usually external to the house because they have a habit of burning the house down. And I was imagining a day like this. If you have a five-foot-wide cook fireplace in your basement, what's going on in it basically 24-7? Fire, right? It's always got a fire in it. It's, I don't know what the temperature is now. It was about 90 when I walked over here. But your house must have been so unbelievably hot. Two, right? We, we don't have dishwashers. There's no dishwashers, right? The, our, our meat doesn't come already rendered into steaks and chops. This stuff has to be going on right in the house or in the kitchen, right? So we're, we're butchering hogs on site. We know hogs live on grounds until the 1840s because where, there's no grocery store. There's nowhere to get. So the food production is some of it's going to come from local farmers. The rest of it is going to be grown on-site or nearby on plots laid out, and then brought right to these gardens. These gardens, we're going to be smoking meat. We're going to be butchering hogs right there. So everyone moves in and goes, no, 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 no. This isn't going to work. It's so noisy, so smelly, so smoky, and so hot. I want the kitchen out of my basement. So immediately, those outbuildings, one of the key outbuildings are kitchens. And they build kitchens. They're often two or one and a half story. The second story or the, the half story, is where enslaved people live when they're not cooking. So this picture is missing, right? We have some sort of white artisan butcher here doing the work. It would have looked a little different then. And in 1825, Jefferson notes this. So he doesn't plan for any of this. But in 1825, he writes the proctor and says, a smokehouse is indispensable to a Virginia family. Therefore, they must be built for such of the professors as require of them. Require them. So by 1827, each house had a, each pavilion had a smokehouse. There were wood yards, and that's right, if you need a fire, what do you need? Firewood, right? So there's constant wood chopping going on. This is going to be happening in the gardens. So these are really busy, bustling, noisy workspaces where we're doing food production. What's, remember, what's also in those gardens? This should give you, if you have your Purell, you want to take it out now as you think about this, right? The privies, a hole in the ground in which we evacuate our bowels, right? Right in the garden. So 50 feet from where you're butchering a hog to serve for dinner that night is a festering hole that 100 people have gone to the bathroom in that day. So again, it's got a building over it. And by the way, students, students like to blow up privies. That was one of their hobbies. Yeah, not a good one. Disgusting. So and here we go. This is 1840s. The hog thing gets out of control. And if, if you're not familiar with this, in the antebellum south, hogs always are free range. Nobody fences in hogs. They just they roam the forest, and you go get them later. 
And so hog stealing is a, a, a crime you see all the time because hogs are just walking around. They're pretty easy to steal. So in the 1840s, this becomes a problem. There are too many hogs. They're, they cause problems. So they actually pass a law <laughs> banning hogs. Your hog can only be in town for 24 hours, right? You, gotta, you get a day and get, the, get, the, get them out of here. So this is the other thing that we're doing Jewel. They legislate continuously, right? There's no plan. The students are just going to come and they're going to drink from the cup of knowledge. And then we find out they don't. And we find out that people have to live here and do things. So there's a huge body of legislation that tells us what's going wrong, right? When you pass a law like this in the 1840s, we can assume you don't just out of the blue decide to ban hogs, right? Hogs have been there all along and they're now a problem. So we can tell about aspirations and about current problems. And hogs must have been a problem in the 1840s. So, and we can see here too, right, this is thinking about these spaces. We have workrooms. So tucked in everywhere, right, adjacent to pavilions and hotels, some of these rooms here on a range, right, are actually going to be converted to workrooms. So even some of the lawn rooms are often appropriated by the professor for use for their own enslaved people and their own work. So even what we think of as the pristine lawn would have functioned a lot differently than Jefferson would have us believe. So now you've butchered the hog. Now you've got to hang it in a smokehouse. Right? This, so they're building smokehouses. This work has to be going on at all times outside. And you've, got, you've got brining. And I think about clothes washing. Right? It's, there's no Maytag. What do you do to wash clothes? You boil them, right? Big old scalding pot of water, fire going, and someone's boiling. It's actually really dangerous work. The people who did washing in the 19th century, when you get physical descriptions, usually have hideous burns on various parts of their bodies from working with this boiling water. So that's going to be going on. You're washing your clothes. There's an overflowing privy, and you're butchering a hog, and then you're smoking meat, all in these what are actually relatively small gardens. So there's just all kinds of great stuff going on back there. Right now, here we are smoking our meat. We're really pig is getting lit on fire, but we're we're preparing our foods. And then you get descriptions like this. So this is again we're back to Hotel A. Right? This one right across from Alderman, there on the uh, northwest corner of the Academical Village. So this this hotel is used. Right, it's a dining hall. The the person that is hired they've they outsource from the get go. The person that is hired runs that dining hall. He's responsible for bringing in enslaved people to make the food, to serve the students, to clean up afterward, and to attend to the students' rooms. And this hotel, this is, this is I just love this letter. Oops, what have I done? There we go. He says, it is with regret, this is the hotel keeper, that I have to intrude myself upon you at your present meeting. And I want to describe the, the upstairs in all the hotels, right, is the dining hall. Downstairs, it's Jefferson. That's where the working kitchen is. And if you've been to Hotel A, right, this is a dugout, kind of sunken patio area adjacent to it. It's down low. And where does water run? It's going to be part of our problem here. So the hotel keeper says, but I, I conceive it to be my duty I owe to this institution and myself to report to you in some way the situation of the tenement I occupy. The cellar of my hotel is five feet below the surface of the earth, and around it is this drainage ditch, and when it rains, 
the water runs right into the ditch and right into the basement. And so the earthen floor basement is sometimes flooded. He lives down there with his family. They're sick all the time. So th this, is, this is the problem, right? In Jefferson's design, it looks great. It's neat as a conception, but it doesn't involve the realities of putting people in it and dealing with real weather conditions. And so this is one of the reasons we gotta, we gotta move people out of these basements. They're not good places to live or to uh, cook your food. And this is what the basement, some of the basements. So this here is Hotel A. That's the big, it's about five foot wide, giant fireplace. This is sort of on the McCormick side. The front half of the basement looks like this. Again, in the 19th century, the pipes and the electricity wouldn't be there, and all the spackling compound <laughs> would not be there. Uh, but that, this was the working kitchen. And back here, that's Maury in the background. Right back there is a gated, locked larder, right? It has iron bars on the windows and iron bars. Why would you lock up all your food in 19th century Virginia? Who's going to steal it? Maybe the students the enslaved people, right? Because you have to keep in mind the enslaved people are cooking, and I'm gonna show you what they cook them here in a second, are cooking for the students, but they're eating a very different ration, and you, they're typically not nourished uh, very well, and so they're, they're often stealing food. And this is what each hotel had to do. And it doesn't sound that bad, right? This, is the, there were, this was one of these actual pieces of legislation. This is what a hotel keeper must provide to the students. And you have to imagine how you would achieve some of this without refrigeration and without good storage, right? There's no air conditioning, none of that. And again, no grocery store. There's no Harris Teeter or Kroger to run to. So this is what we want them to do. It doesn't always work that way. This is, what, this is the list of rules that hotel keepers had to do in terms of taking care of the students. And this gives you a sense of what enslaved people had to do every day, right? They had to go in in the morning and bring in water and start the fire. They had to clean the room after the students went to class. Right? This, it, it even goes down to when they would shine shoes. And then, here at the bottom, midday, every hotel keeper had to provide an enslaved person in the afternoon to run whatever errand a student wanted them to run. So there, you, you gotta imagine that this, this place that's meant to be segregated and meant to hide the work of the enslaved is actually this incredibly busy hive, right? People are running all over the place all the time. So even the lawn, meant to be an impermeable landscape where only white students and faculty mix, routinely has enslaved people out there cleaning rooms, meeting students, delivering goods to students, so it's going to be this kind of fraught, complicated space. Again, busy. It's a city. that you, We plop an academic city in the middle of a rural landscape. I love this. I said there's no refrigeration. Ice. Anybody know where we get the ice from? The pond. So Memorial Gym, basically where Memorial Gym is now, there was an ice pond down there. And so in the winter... The ice would be, right, you'd cut out the ice into blocks and stick it in an ice house, which is a really, like, thick-walled stone building that's sunk in the earth. And so you keep ice all summer, and everybody, there's even rules. There's a, you can go in, and in these fantastic records that we're working on, there are ice accounts. So everybody is billed for ice, because all summer long, you have ice. And I think this is funny. Uh, this is when cocktails were invented. 
right? Because this is when you, you would do this. You couldn't drink water, but you could take your ice and make a cold drink, and it was a fad in the antebellum period, so much earlier than I ever thought. And I'm sure, actually, we're going to get to that. Our university students were, were mixologists, I suspect. And here we get, right, this is 1832. So by 1832, everybody, right, this is, Professor Emmett would like to erect. What is he erecting here? I'm too close to it. I'm going blind. Yeah. Yeah, this is adding kitchens and smokehouses, right? So as soon as people get here, everything changes. So all those outbuildings in the bond engraving are reflecting this reality that we need to build outbuildings. And this right here, I've got to step away. I'm too close. This is behind Pavilion 3. This is a building called the Muse. And it's only been called the Muse. And Muse means a stable. It's only been called the Muse since the early 20th century. And if you go stand next to it, if you have time before you leave for the weekend, go stand and look at it. It's great. You can see how many times it's been added onto and changed. But it was initially probably a one-and-a-half-story out kitchen that was built by the resident of Pavilion 3 um, to, for his pavilion kitchen and for his enslaved people to live above. So I said this is all connected to a project, and I'm talking about buildings. Well, here's where we start to get to this. This is the kind of stuff we're doing, and I'm, I'm hoping here in a little bit I can run a 3D simulation for you. We'll see if I can pull it off. What we are doing where we can, so we've done it for most of the pavilions, we're building a 3D model of the university before the Civil War that's meant to capture these outbuildings. And this is Mrs. Gray's kitchen, which is located in the back corner of the garden in Pavilion 9. So if you walked right here, blocking your view would be West Range Cafe in the garden room now, right? That hotel, that's where this is located. This building stood until the early 20th century and is, is now gone. The ground floor of this building was the industrial kitchen that was originally housed in the basement. Those basements flooded, right? Smelly, noisy, problematic. And then the second story would have been, a, uh, again, a, a, a loft space that anywhere up to 15 enslaved people, we don't know how many, but hotel keepers owned or rented typically anywhere from 16 to about 35 enslaved people. They were usually the single largest slaveholders on grounds and they have to house them somewhere. And that's one of the eternal complications, right? We know where the students lived. We know where the faculty lived. We don't know where the enslaved people lived. And then here's another view, and you can see down here, this is the early stages of our recreation. I like this. You just have the kitchen sitting there by itself. But we're, we're rebuilding all of these as part of this uh, Simulation, so you can go in and do the research and check the records. And what we're trying to bring back to life is the bond engraving, right? All these buildings. And so can you make out, I don't know if you can quite make out Mrs. Gray's kitchen. That is McGuffey Cottage right there. And Mrs. Gray's kitchen is obscured again by the actual hotel right there. But we're trying to bring all that back to life so we can better understand how the university functioned, how people lived here, who they were, and what they did, and then understand why the students behave, they be, behave the way they behave. So if you've been to the bookstore, maybe some of you have picked up Rot, Riot, and Rebellion, kind of a breezy. 
it's really using one student diary from the 1830s to describe student behavior. And it tells it really, really well and cinematically. It's a fun read. We're trying to do, I think, something a lot bigger than that by actually linking it to all the records. And so here's a, a th this is the Maverick plan with the documented outbuildings. So notice the change. They're everywhere, right? These gardens are just filled, filled with rooms. My favorite one, I'm not going to talk a lot about this today, but I would like you to pay attention. There'll be either something coming uh, at UVA today uh, in the not-too-distant future or in the alumni magazine about this. But the anatomical theater, it's not part of the original Maverick plan, right? That building doesn't exist. It is the theater where the medical professor performs dissections, right? So they bring in a cadaver, the students sit in tiered seating, and he demonstrates how to cut up a body and how to perform surgery on a, on a dead person. The reason we build this is, you can imagine this, they, right, they don't really embalm in the 19th century, so they have fresh corpses that they've bled, but it's a, it's a rotting, it's a, a corpse about to rot, right? That's, and they have to get them, they have to get them quickly, and you should think about where they get them from. Well, the medical professor, Robley Dunglison, shockingly says, I don't really think I want to dissect a cadaver in the first floor of my house. This is, no. So Jefferson designs the anatomical theater. So again, the idea is the professors will live here, but no real thought about what that actually means. And so it's the, the peopling creates these buildings. So they build the anatomical theater, and you can't see it here, but a little farther off back over here, um, kind of sort of uh, behind the Special Collections Library, Clemens area, was, was another building where students did dissections. So when the professor was finished with the cadaver, the parts, what was left, was shipped over to the dissection lab, and the students got to then practice on what was left. And they, too, were busy out grave robbing. That's how you get bodies. They grave rob. This is every medical school in the country grave robbed regularly to get cadavers. So that's, again, a whole separate story that involves a statewide. It's really macabre. But that's all in special collections. And that material is working its way into the Jewel Project now. So you can actually hear the professors talking about it. And you would hire, as a fascinating note, so the students would go grave rob locally. The university hired people called resurrectionists. It's a euphemism if I've ever heard one. Your job was to grave rob, right? You scouted out who died recently, what are graveyards that I can slip into and dig up a body, and they were very good at it. They could be in and out in an hour. Uh, and then they would take them to Richmond, stuff them in a barrel, and ship them to UVA. And you've got to move fast because they're not really embalmed. So again, as it's inhabited and lived in, the buildings expand, it totally changes. This looks nothing like our gardens today, right? I'm, I'm always struck by Pavilion 5. It's like a condominium complex there. There are so many buildings. And you'll, you'll notice here Pavilion 7, the Colonnade Club, right, which is largely not inhabited. It serves as the library until the rotunda opens. It then serves as a chapel until the rotunda annex is built. So it's referred to as the old library or the chapel in the records. Its garden is the woodyard. So gangs of enslaved people are bringing timber from, if you remember the bond engraving, the hills in the distance, bringing timber from those properties. And UVA actually owns a farm uh, in the southern part of the county at this point that they own just for timber. 
And so that's one of the places the timber's coming from. It's being brought to this garden where it's then being split up into wood and enslaved people do all the splitting for firewood. And then they deliver it to the chimneys, right? The fireplaces all across ground. So this is a hustling, bustling city. So it's a wood yard. And the one, the one enslaved person the university owns, he's known as Anatomical Lewis. He lives alone in an outbuilding in this garden, which I don't know if it's one of these. We're not really clear on where he lived, but it's said he lived in this garden. And he lived separate from the rest of the enslaved community because his job was to clean up the anatomical theater, which is handling rotting corpses, most of whom were stolen from enslaved and free black graveyards across the state. So he's, I think, kind of seen as not somebody you want to be near. So he probably lives a very lonely existence in that garden. This is the cracker box, right? This is down behind Pavilion 10. This is Lever oops, oops. I'm going to learn how to press my buttons here. This is Levering Hall right here. So now it's uh, two graduate students, one upstairs, one downstairs. It's a kitchen. First floor is a, if you go into it now, it's one room, has a big fireplace and a bread oven. And it was built about 1830. So these, a few of these buildings still stand and are very separated from their use, uh, right? This, again, would have been a, an enslaved dormitory upstairs and a kitchen where enslaved people prepared food for the students who went to what is now Levering Hall for their dining hall. This is a, you can see with the car here, this is our carriage turnaround is now a parking lot. But as you came up those alleys to the lawn, on the east side, right, the elevation drops off steeply toward the medical school, there are rooms Underneath, there are basement rooms underneath most of the lawn rooms along that side. And there are a couple on the west side, but most are on the east side. We know some of these had cisterns in them. They were finished and had, you know, kind of a, a, a basically a water collection in them that was collecting water from the roofs because water is another problem. You're on a ridge line. There's no spring here. Water is a constant problem. The rest were likely where enslaved people lived. We know that they were plastered off and dirt, earthen floored, but they were finished, and you only plaster off walls if they're going to be inhabited or you have a cistern in there. And so we documented which ones have the cisterns, and we know in several of them enslaved people live. My guess is most of them were used that way. We know in one case a, a, a free black man rented one of them because he was a barber, and he cut hair for the students, and he was married to, according to the records, an enslaved person who was owned by someone at the university. So this is all going on right here. So instead of being walking up the chute, right, you're walking past a place where enslaved people live on your way to the lawn. Oh, yeah, here we go. 1825. No student. I have 10 until I'm, till I'm done. Please. Oh, i got to stop. Okay. i got to stop. See, I, you, I, she told me, she, you're going to run over. I always run over. So I'm going I'm to wrap up really quickly here. 1825, students shouldn't drink. See if I can get to it quickly. <laughs> students shouldn't drink. And then we have a morning bell to get them up. We make them wear a uniform, right? We're trying to control them, control them, control them. It doesn't work. It just makes them matter. They get, they get more and more misbehaved. They duel. There's a point in the 1850s where there are 11 separate duels all by students from Alabama. They really are careful. And again, the records show us, right, garden walls going up, going down, cockfighting, riotous conduct as the students misbehaving. 
And I'm hoping I have it somewhere here. Where does he, yeah, here we go. Students were our first mixologists. Right? Three pictures of mint julep. <laughs> anyway, so I will stop there. This is briefly to show you as the university expands outward, right? We see already by the 1850s how much farther it has gone. And uh, I will stop there because I, I, I want to give you guys the chance to ask some questions. Just please, do you want them to come down? Yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll come to you with microphones. I'd love to take any questions you have about the early university. Thank you so much. That was really interesting. Do you have a way of like locating the, the letters that are written to specific places in part of the project to say like, oh, we know these things related to this pavilion, so we can attach it to that? In the yes, that, to some degree. It's not, we can't do it uh, perfectly, but yes. One of the things we're trying to do is track person, place, and event down to the granular level so that you can visit and ultimately, you'll be able to go, okay, on this date in 1826, who was here, what happened here? It's not always clear because the records don't always distinguish exactly where things happened. But we, I, yes, we can get some sense of where they happened. And that's what we're working on. Is trying to, we want to map this out beyond just connecting the, uh, the actual records. So I hope that when you come and, come and visit the website in a few years, it'll actually be doing that. Um, you mentioned that all the first professors were European, yep. but that only one of them seemed to have trouble with having slaves, yes. which I found surprising because I thought at that point most of Europe had banned slavery and it would have been more of like a moral conflict, but it doesn't sound like it was. It, it, it wasn't. So they may have come with vague anti-slavery principles, but I, this is hard. I can't speak to their actual mind, but we know that most of the early professors not only immediately begin purchasing enslaved people when they get here, so they, they own several, right? This is not, uh, they're getting into it fully. They also buy farms and plantations outside of UVA. And when you're doing that, you're really committing to something. I think part of it is, the first piece is, the only way you're going to get the kind of help you expect, there is no, you can't go hire someone for free. There are um, about 400 free people of color living in the county at that time. That's it. So there's a, no, no hiring base there. And free white people are, uh, almost never take work that they see as slave work. So there's simply no market for it. So they're, I think they're driven to it by reality. This is a slave society. But I think they also pretty quickly adapt to it. And, and you can imagine, I, I'm always imagining, you, you wine and dine at Jefferson's, that's a lifestyle, right? It's, again, built on owning 600 people, but it's a lifestyle that's really attractive. And Thomas Key's the only one who really seems to maintain uh, a real ambivalence uh, or aversion to it. Question here. Oh, thanks. Thank you again for a fascinating lecture. Um, you mentioned at the beginning... Um, that dress was very important to the early students, but you weren't able to follow up. Oh yeah! On oh that. gosh! I'd love to hear a little it's, bit about. Oh that. no! The, it's it's furs, it's silks. Uh, I, I I say think of sort of three musketeers. It's all very expensive, and that's why I was kind of making the Patagonia joke to you, like Versace, right? It's all about labeling. You dress your station, 
And so to be made to wear a uniform of cheap cloth, just they hate the uniform. And they all come with steamer trunks full of clothes, and they want to go out. And then when the uniform law is put into place, they have to wear it all the time everywhere they go. Oh, no, as soon as it's dark, they have all kinds of excuses. They're trying to get into their finery because that's about that public performance of station. You can kind of get a sense of it in that one drawing, but they wore, like, striped pants. Oh, it's great. They're just fantastic outfits. Uh, but again, finery. Hi. Um, just very curious about what was going on with Professor Castle's hand in that portrait. What, what was that? <laughs> Is that typical of the time, to have people pose that way? <laughs> oh, I have no clue. Now you're going to send me way back. Like your first or second slide. Yeah, it's way back, isn't it? Sorry. <laughs> that's a good question. Right there. I no, no, that's, I, I, you know, I don't know. This is where Maury needs to be here. If she were here, she could probably explain portraiture conventions, so there's something going on, but it does. I, I like to joke, he's going, why did I take this job? Right? <laughs> I, I realize this may be a, an enormous uh, question to answer, but I'm wondering, um, based on what you've described of the economy that was built on enslaved peoples being a part of this world, what the effect was in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. Um, so it's a great question. I, I, and I don't know I can fully answer this because we haven't really gotten to that point. Maury and I are both pre-Civil War people and designed the project around that, but sort of built it with the intent that we would either get to it later or someone else would be able to run with it. It's, it's designed to be able to go all the way into the 20th century. Um, we're not, we're not going to get there. But to your question, I, I think you see a couple things. I, I think most people probably relatively stay put initially. right? They, there's going to be freed people. The first order of business is find your family. And Virginia from uh, roughly 1820 to the emancipation is a net exporter of enslaved people. They're, and this is because the cotton south is expanding and is, right, it's at the time of the Civil War, a third of American wealth is, is in, held in enslaved people and cotton, right? It's, it's the economic juggernaut. So slaves are being marched. They're being sent to Richmond and put on ships. So there's, in addition to this hiring network, people are selling off enslaved people whenever it suits their financial needs to do so. So families are being torn apart here in Virginia as a general rule. So what you see is a lot of movement immediately after the war as enslaved people try to recon formerly enslaved people try to reconstitute their families. But the folks here, if they have their families intact, a lot of fo folks stay put and continue to interact. There's this really strange period through Reconstruction where these free people vote and politically participate, and there are attempts by some, right, there's kind of a moderate white class that attempts to make political friends with African Americans, but uh, white supremacy rears its ugly head pretty quickly. And I, I think you, we don't know, but I think you'd find that there are probably generations of people who never really leave the area and continue to work for the university now as paid laborers. And we see this in some professors' accounts where they complain, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, now that I pay them to do their work, they're just they're lazy and they don't do their job. And I think that, that doesn't mean they really didn't do their job. They're just claiming, you know what? I'm done. I'm off the clock now. I'm going home and eating dinner and tending to my family. Uh, but I think, same thing, uh, this probably continues 
just like this. And we know down where the South Lawn Project is, that's actually becomes a uh, kind of a neighborhood of free people of color before the war. And after the war, I think it actually expands. And so anyone providing the same kind of labor to the university as a paid labor, a lot of them are going to live in that neighborhood. And so that becomes kind of a, I don't want to say large, but a, a, a free people living down there continuing to work. We know it's there uh, it, it, right up until the uh, 20s. Final question. Oh, oh, good. <laughs> I don't know if you just answered my question, okay. but um, I did the tour across JPA. Is yes. that the South Lawn Project? Yes. With the free yes. Okay. Well, did you see the Catherine Foster site? I did. It was so, amazing. So a really quick note all. on this. This is what's fascinating. This is my, my area of expertise is really the, you know, the, free, the free population here. So you live in this rural context. You're free in a society that assumes that because of the color of your skin, you must be a slave. There's no opportunity, right? You have very little means for economic advancement. The university is a beacon. People come here for opportunity. So free people start to buy property around the university. But it's a really dangerous space, right? It's a space filled with these guys, right? These masters who... They are vicious. They, if, if you look at one of them wrong, right? They, a, a, a slave girl delivers what, a, what the student claims was rancid butter to a table. She's nearly beaten to death for the offense. Another student says what? Because she didn't hear what the student said to her? Same thing, nearly beaten to death for insolence. And the, the free people of color have the same experience. So it's this great promise that there's economic advancement. So Catherine Foster, who's house was over there. She buys property. She does clothes washing. She does seamstress work for the university. She probably cooks food and sells it. There's kind of this uh, sub-economy of selling food and getting liquor for students. And this is fantastic. She actually, there, she's right by, the, there's a shooting range off grounds down there. So the students bring their guns. This is, you know, they bring their guns. They're not allowed to have them on grounds. They pay Catherine Foster, a free woman of color, to keep their guns. So she has like an arms cache in her bedroom for the students. So you get this really weird stuff. But, right, her house is vandalized repeatedly. Um, the faculty complain about free pe people of color, even while they're providing all these really amazing services. So they, they enter a really dangerous place uh, where, again, a, a mere glance can get you nearly beaten to death by a student. Let's thank Kurt. Finn. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, for you uh, from the Lifetime Learning and Alumni and Parent and Friends and the Alumni Association. Thanks so much for thank giving you. this talk today. Yeah. Have a great rest of your union weekend. Remember thank to you. hydrate. It's hot out there. <laughs>